nearly 10% of Americans self-identify as Irish. That totals nearly 33 million Americans who claim Irish heritage. These numbers are incredible when you consider that the country of Ireland itself only has 6.6 million people. As the fourth largest ethnic group in the United States, Irish Americans have made an incredible impact on the history of the country, and even more so on the history of burial. This year for St. Patrick's Day, we consider some significant Irish graves. Who were these people? And what stories do their graves have to tell? I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So hopefully everyone is staying strong out there. I know it's been sort of a crazy week. Um, I confess, I kind of got scolded today because I've been told that I am not taking the quarantine situation seriously enough. But as someone who is the daughter of a nurse... I think things just kind of roll off my back a little bit more easily than most people. Um, Any of you who are related to people who work in the healthcare industry are familiar with the fact that they deal with this type of thing every day. So it's not necessarily downplaying it, but I think those of us who have loved ones in the industry or those of us who may work in the industry ourselves have a little bit of a different perspective on it. But regardless, I hope everyone out there is staying safe, um, making good decisions, washing your hands, all of that stuff. I will say that uh, I know that I did plug Phoenix Flies here in Atlanta. Unfortunately, many of the Phoenix Flies activities are actually being canceled, obviously, along with everything else. I mean, when March Madness goes, can the local history activities be far behind They have been trying to keep everyone updated. If you were signed up for their mailing list, they are being pretty proactive by actually sending out emails talking about which events are canceled. I know this afternoon I didn't catch the email and the lecture I was going to attend tonight was actually canceled and everyone was leaving by the time I got there. But I got an email earlier about tomorrow's events. I don't know specifically about the tour of Utoy Cemetery that is supposed to be tomorrow night. That's the one that Ashley's leading. I know I talked about it last week. Uh, and then she's supposed to be leading another one Saturday morning. I spoke with her earlier. She seems to think that they probably will be canceled. Most group activities at this point are being canceled. So... When this is released tomorrow, I I honestly don't know if it will officially be canceled, but that seems to be the direction that things are leaning. So if you are planning on coming out for that, I know I do have a lot of listeners in Atlanta. I apologize for that, but obviously it's an extreme situation. And hopefully it will all be resolved soon. I know it's nearly impossible to reschedule as many events as there are during Phoenix Flies. And I think that right now they are not planning on doing a just, oh, it's all over. I think because they are dealing with so many different partners, including federal and state government, numerous universities, that they are still playing it by ear and taking things on a case-by-case basis. I have not seen anything other than four specific activities for tomorrow, which I know of are canceled. Um, None of them were cemetery-related. I don't know anything beyond that. 
as far as I know, the tours of Westview that I mentioned last week are still going to be going on this weekend. Those were bus tours. I would recommend if you are a local Atlanta and you are interested in trying to attend some of these cemetery events, check with the Atlanta Preservation Center. They're going to be the most up-to-date information. But I like to tell you what I know because I was plugging the event. I do think it's a really great event, but unfortunately, safety first and everybody has to make their own decision about what they're comfortable doing or not doing. Okay, getting to this week's episode. Obviously, next Tuesday is St. Patrick's Day, even though most of the parades are canceled. St. Patrick's Day is, in many ways, a very American holiday. Uh, And I won't lie, it's one of my favorites. Um, Any holiday that promotes that much drinking and that much almost unwarranted merriness, there has to be something said for it. Uh, I also lived in Savannah for a number of years, as you know. Savannah has the second largest St. Patrick's Day celebration in the United States in terms of a parade. You can't live in Savannah and not get at least a little bit excited about St. Patrick's Day. Also, the jig is up. I'm Irish. In case the red hair and the pasty skin and the freckles and the drinking hadn't tipped you off already, I am Irish. And I sat down just earlier today trying to figure out exactly how Irish I am and I can remember growing up there was always sort of a rough estimation that I was three quarters Irish so I actually did the math for you today and without trying to get too complicated I went back to my great-grandparents so you have eight great-grandparents which if you do the division breaks down to each great each of your eight great-grandparents contributes 12.5% of your ancestry. So if you were to break that down for me, five out of my eight great-grandparents are Irish. So I have a Curran, I have a Harrigan, I have a Mullane, I have a Malone, and a McDermott. Then I have two French great-grandparents, which equals out to an even 25%. And then one lone German Jewish, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestor who comes in at 12.5%. So if you ever were curious about where my people came from, there's your rundown. But no matter how you slice it, that means that I am a whopping 62.5% Irish, which means I have a vested interest in St. Patrick's Day. Now... As I said in the intro, I'm certainly not alone. The Irish constitute the fourth largest ethnic group in the United States, and I read some conflicting information on this. So overall, the largest ethnic group in the United States is actually German. However, these numbers are all about self-identification. So it goes German, African-American, Hispanic, then Irish. But the question is, what constitutes African-American versus Creole, folks who are from the Caribbean? Same thing with Hispanic. Are you looking at one Hispanic group? Are you looking at multiple Hispanic groups? For my purposes here, I'm going to say that they are the fourth largest ethnic group in the United States. And 33 million is a lot. Obviously, it's almost six times the amount that are in Ireland itself. 
So I want to talk a little bit about how the Irish got here, what they did when they got here. Talk about some, I think, very interesting Irish graves, and then finish up by talking about probably the best-known Irish grave, um, which doesn't actually exist. So to start off with, you have to think about the Irish as two distinct groups. So you have what is known as the Scotch-Irish, and then you have Irish-Irish, which I know might be confusing. It helps if you look at it in the perspective of different eras of immigration. So during the colonial period, which the colonial period in the United States is defined as starting in 1607 with Jamestown, going up until 1775 when independence is declared from Great Britain, the majority of quote-unquote Irish who come to the United States are actually Scotch-Irish. So you might say, well, that's confusing. Are they Scottish or are they Irish? The answer is that they are both. Um, They are often known as Ulster Protestants because they come mainly from Ulster, which at the time was the largest plantation in Ireland, city, urban area, Um, the old way that sort of rural agricultural land was handled in Ireland. And many of these Ulster Irish, these Ulster Protestants, had actually started off in Scotland. And Scotland, which was originally a Catholic country, a Roman Catholic country, there had been a lot of prejudice against Protestants, particularly in lowland Scotland, and they had immigrated over to Ireland, and they had sort of integrated themselves into the Irish culture, and they had spent generations there and had become this sort of amalgamation of Scotch-Irish. Later on, this is going to get a little bit muddier because you are going to have a huge Scottish migration, particularly following the Highland Clearances, which happened in the mid-18th century. You have this following the Battle of Culloden. You have a large population of Scotch-Irish who are actually going to settle in the south. So in the Carolinas, in the Piedmont and the Appalachian Mountains, you have a huge Scotch-Irish population. They are Protestants. That's the big thing to remember that sets them aside. This is why the words Scotch-Irish and Ulster Protestant are often used interchangeably. And they definitely populate in the colonial period. They come for a lot of different reasons. Many of them come as indentured servants or they come as convicts, particularly, as I said, in that era of the Highland Clearances. But also, they tend to be not necessarily landed gentry, but better off. But they tend to gravitate towards the backcountry. They carve housing and livings out of the wilderness. If you are going to have anyone who is Roman Catholic coming from Ireland, they tend to stay in cities. And this is going to be the overwhelming trend that we see with these two divergent groups of Irish, that these Protestant Scotch-Irish They tend to go into the hill country, they tend to be farmers, they tend to stay much more rural. Whereas Roman Catholic Irish are going to be a much more urban population, they are going to work in mills, they are going to work in factories. It's going to be a big divergence, which is very interesting because the Scotch-Irish start off as a little bit better off in the old country, and then they tend to be a more rural, poorer population here in the United States, as opposed to Roman Catholic Irish, 
who start off mainly as farmers and over here they become part of the industrial class. Just the way that things sort of panned out based on the time that they immigrated, based on a lot of factors really. So these Scotch-Irish, they're going to continue to immigrate through the 1840s. Again, they tend to be the earlier group. They tend to stay within their own class. They do intermarry with other Protestants, and you do get some mixing with the English stock. And even though these folks at the time were considered to be Irish, they become much more part of what I think of as the mainstream white Anglo-Saxon Protestant makeup of early America. They are much more accepted because of their religious similarities with the larger English population. Now, that's not to say that they always got along. They certainly do have a reputation if you read about them in history, but overall, they have a lot more success than the later immigrants who are going to be Roman Catholic. So what changes? Well, to start off with, you're going to have roughly 3 million of these Scotch-Irish who come over at different points, um, and it starts to slow down. So up until 1845, which that date's going to be important in a minute, so don't forget it. They're representing basically like half of Irish immigration in the first half of the 19th century. So about a million Irish come between 1820 and 1845, and 500,000 of them are Scotch-Irish. So you still have this same trickle in because at this point the country is still figuring itself out. There is a lot of land grabbing going on, and these people are anxious to be able to not just buy their own land, but work their own land. And they, there's just a lot more of it than there is in Ireland. Prior to that sort of early American period, when we're still in the colonial period, if you were an Irish Catholic, and that's not to say that there weren't, if you remember back to our Catholic episode that we did in November, we talked a lot about some of the early Roman Catholic settlements in Maryland. There definitely were Roman Catholics, but they were such a tiny portion of the population because the majority of colonies did not allow them. So if you were to come in the colonial period as a Roman Catholic member of the Irish race, odds are you were coming over as an indentured servant. And there is a spike in this, particularly in the 17th century, because what happens is, is under Cromwell's rule, he expels quite a few Roman Catholics, uh, something to the tune of like 8,000 of them are sent to the colonies as indentured servants. And the majority of these die on the way. Um, obviously they didn't keep great records, but something like 40 to 50% of indentured servants did not live long enough to see the end of their servitude. It's kind of interesting because I feel like a lot of the issues that I'm talking about, particularly in this early period, those of you who might be watching along on uh, Outlander on Stars, obviously it's about Scottish immigrants, not Irish, but a lot of the same issues, the issues of indentured servitude, the issue of the Highland Clarences, um, the story of sort of the Scotch-Irish in the Piedmont, all of those are 
very closely tied to that television show and the associated series of books by Diana Gabaldon. So if that's something that you're interested in, I would highly recommend. They are very well-researched, pretty accurate historical fiction. I think probably more so than a lot of other things that are written about that era. So if that's your thing, I would recommend it. Plus, there's pretty men in kilts, and let's be real, who doesn't like that? Moving on from Pretty Men in Kilts, though can we ever really? Considering how the Roman Catholic indentured servants were treated, you can imagine that there is an underlying prejudice against the differentness of them. Having a different religion was seen as very threatening, particularly a religion that had a supreme ruler in the form of a pope. And this is something that never really goes away. In our Catholic episode, we talked about it. Even when John F. Kennedy was running for president, there's this weird fear that somehow the pope will have control of the United States. And there's just a, there's a really rough attitude that comes from just an underlying distrust and you can trace the conflicts of Catholics and Protestants obviously back to the Reformation before the Reformation it's a complex topic no matter how you slice it but those underlying prejudices start early in the United States and never really go away now starting in the 1840s we see a massive wave of Irish immigration. This is going to be the first true massive immigration that we see of any ethnic group. And of course, it's all a result of the Great Famine. So the Irish Potato Famine, everybody learned about it at one point in history class. Between 1844 and 1851, we have a million Catholics immigrate. So now keep in mind that between 1820 and 1845, so in a 25-year period, we had a million. Now in less than a decade, in six years, we have that same amount. And of those, 90% are Catholic. So we've had a complete reversal of the numbers. The Scotch-Irish are now going to fall into the minority. Roman Catholic-Irish are going to be the majority. These Irish are brought over. I don't want to draw a direct correlation to a slave ship, but it, it was a lot like it. The joke was is that they called the ships that brought Irish to the United States in this period coffin ships because many of them had death rates as high as 30%. Uh, you can read accounts of sharks following these ships along because so many bodies were being thrown overboard. It was a perilous choice, but with almost certain starvation in Ireland as your only other option, facing the risk of a long sea voyage that you very likely could not survive was seen as a better option. And there certainly were more opportunities. We're in the grips of the Industrial Revolution. So there's a lot going on in the United States that's going to draw a new immigrant class. The demand for relatively unskilled labor to work particularly in factories is going to be huge when you hear about the mill girls in places like Lowell Massachusetts where mechanized millwork was invented the majority of them are Irish immigrants this is going to be a very very important part 
of understanding exactly what happens to Irish immigrants in the United States because they are seen as being so numerous, particularly being Roman Catholic and having large families, that they're seen as being very expendable. And that is never a good thing. So we have an influx. And once they arrive in the United States, things don't necessarily get easier. So obviously New York is the biggest port of immigration. It's not the only port of immigration. You have a couple of others. But New York is going to be the main one. So that's going to be the one I'm going to talk about. Because these coffin ships were in such bad shape and disease was rampant, essentially they gave their passengers the bare minimum requirements to keep them alive in terms of food, in terms of water, in terms of blanket, everything was the bare minimum. These people were desperate. They took what they could get. But as a result, people arrived diseased. They arrived in terrible shape. And often, now keep in mind, we tend to think of this in terms of Ellis Island. Ellis Island isn't going to be opened for another 50 years till the 1890s. So Ellis Island is a thing of the future. At this point, the majority of Irish who are coming and immigrating to the United States are going to be held on either Staten Island or Blackwell's Island. And Blackwell's Island is actually known as Roosevelt Island now. And these two locations are chosen because they have hospitals and these are quarantine hospitals. So they process all of these new immigrants coming in and anyone who appears to be sick is left there and quarantined. And this is going to be a continual practice because obviously they don't want to start an epidemic in the city by allowing people who are sick in. Now you might ask, what are they sick with? Well, the two most common are going to be typhoid fever and cholera. Let's start with cholera. Cholera arguably is probably the largest killer of Irish in American history. And cholera, very simply, is the poop water problem. You have bacteria from human waste getting into the water supply. This is something that goes back a long time. You can trace this to villages where, you know, raw sewage is being dumped into the water supply. This is a classic problem. It's a problem that continues to happen today. Typhoid fever, on the other hand, this is one that is, it just travels rapidly. You hear a lot about it in terms of military history. Being in close quarters, it spreads very quickly. So these individuals are going to be quarantined at one of these two hospitals. And at that point, they either live or they die. And the sad story is, is that many of them get to U.S. soil and then never get to enjoy it because they end up dying in quarantine. Often because, first of all, you don't have the medical knowledge to treat a lot of these diseases and to control them. Secondly, they are already malnourished and they don't have a fighting chance. Their immune system is already depleted because they were starving in Ireland. Thirdly, I don't want to say that people just didn't care, but people just didn't care. As I said, these were seen as people who were expendable. More were coming every day. So they are definitely commodified even before they get fully into the United States. And this is kind of where my first story comes in. 
This is one that was in the news five or six years ago, so you may have actually seen something about it. But in 2003, on Staten Island, they broke ground for the new Richmond County Supreme Court building. So it's the local county Supreme Court. And when they broke ground for this new building, they almost immediately started to plow up bones. Now, the area where this military, where this, excuse me, courthouse was supposed to be was a former hospital, which was known as the Marine Hospital. And it's in the St. George neighborhood of Staten Island. And the Marine Hospital, interestingly enough, was burned to the ground in 1858 as part of essentially a nativist riot. So following this first wave of immigration, you're going to have the rise of nativism in the United States, where there is an extreme prejudice against particularly Irish. If you've ever seen this, the signs in history clash, Irish need not apply. The whole idea was that actual political parties like the Know Nothing Party form around prejudice against non-native born citizens, particularly Irish Catholics. So you have individuals who come, one of the newspaper articles I read profiled a particular man, his name was James Riley, age 40, who died in 1849, 21 days after he arrived at the Staten Island Marine Hospital. And James Riley, like many others, was buried in trenches outside the hospital. And their death rates were so high there that they were stacking bodies three or four deep in these trench, these long, 12-foot-long trenches. If you recall back way to the beginning of the show when we were talking about the Cemetery of Innocence in Paris, this is the exact type of methodology that they used to use. And interestingly enough, this is still the way that a lot of potter's fields, which are for indigent or poor dead, this is still the way the burials are handled, unfortunately. Um, in New York City, that's still how it's done, um, the burials that are done there. Most cities are switching over to cremation now, but for a long time when they did traditional burials, that's how they did it. They didn't dig individual graves. They buried them in large mass graves. So these mass graves had been largely forgotten after the military hospital burned down in the 1850s. Unfortunately, that didn't mean they stayed undisturbed. So there was development there. There was houses built around the turn of the century. And then later, what happens in 1957 is it's actually paved to become a municipal parking lot. And I read one interview of a woman. She said that her husband had been part of the crew that helped build the parking lot. And she remembers that as they were grading the land to smooth and level it out, they were just plowing up dump trucks full of bones. And they filled up the dump trucks, and the dump trucks drove away, and they dumped all of the dirt and all of the bones in the harbor. So this story's disturbing, obviously, on a number of levels, but it's difficult to gauge just how many people could have been buried at this particular marine hospital site. We don't know. Probably thousands. However, in the 1950s, when this happened, no real solid documentation was made of it. So we only know what we can know from the remains today. 
So the question is, what do we know? The archaeological excavation of the site revealed roughly 83 sets of remains, which is a disturbingly low amount when you consider the overall number that probably were buried there. But of these 83 sets of remains, there's a mixture. There are mostly men, but there are women and children there as well. What do we know about them? Well, the remains tell a sad story. We can see from the enamel on their teeth that almost all of them suffered long bouts of starvation, malnutrition, extremely stressful lives. They did not have a happy existence prior to their deaths. And the bones also reveal that these folks had hard lives in terms of heavy labor. Um, The majority of them were probably farmers in Ireland. Uh, Ireland built its fortunes on the the backs of Irish tenant farmers. Their bones show, you know, the type of calcifications that show, you know, premature arthritis, lots of things that... I can remember when I was in college and taking anthropology classes, there were some very old anatomical skeletons that we had in the anthropology department that had probably been there since the 50s or 60s. And if you looked at them, they had the same type of bodies that I'm sure these Irish manual laborers had Um, a lot of these were from the lower classes in India and they came through British medical schools and ended up trickling down over the years but I remember you could see that there was sort of those spiky calcifications that you see from people who have premature arthritis from hard just back-breaking work And you can see, you know, where the attachments were for their muscles from all of the pulling and straining and things like that. Bones tell a really, really important story. And these bones tell the story of a hard life. Uh, These people had a hard life and arguably even a harder death, being buried in unmarked mass graves. So what ends up happening is that the bones are sufficiently ruined from all of the disturbance of the site that all of them fit in two caskets so they have one larger sort of elaborate metal casket that they use for the adult bones and then a smaller white casket that they use for the children's bones and they are for several years stored in the community mausoleum slash receiving crypt at, at moravian cemetery which is sort of one of the oldest and more glamorous cemeteries on Staten Island. Uh, It's probably best known for having the private cemetery of the Vanderbilt family in it, which has sort of been in the news in the past year with the death of Gloria Vanderbilt last June. Um, I know she was interred there with her, one, two, I think fourth husband, Wyatt Cooper. You probably are most familiar with him because of his son, Anderson Cooper on CNN. Uh, And her other son whose name escapes me at the moment but uh, Anderson Cooper's brother who committed suicide back in the 80s so she was buried there but that's Moravian Cemetery I always like to give a little history behind the cemeteries that's probably what it's best known for though there are a number of other important folks who are buried out there one of the cemeteries I have not visited 
But regardless, they did open up their receiving crypt and stored these caskets of bones there for several years before they were reinterred in a new subterranean vault that was part of a memorial that was designed for these folks at the courthouse complex. And that's why I said, you know, you may remember this because it was very much in the news around 2014 when this all happened. Um, and I will say that the borough of Staten Island did a lot to try to ameliorate this situation because they put, I think, close to half a million dollars into designing this sort of park space to memorialize these folks and really try to own the history of the fact that they had been forgotten, but trying to definitely mitigate for those circumstances. But I think it's a very telling story in terms of looking at how the Irish first are welcomed here. And unfortunately, things don't get much better from there on in. The second story I have to tell is one that unfortunately, I feel like I never learned in American history. And it is sort of cheating because I'm going to be honest that it's not really a graveyard story, but I think that it's a worthwhile story to tell. And it's the story of St. Patrick's Battalion. And it actually predates the story I just told a little bit, but I think it really speaks to sort of the differences, particularly of the Irish Catholic in the United States. So during the Mexican-American War, which if you know anything about the Mexican-American War, was very controversial. Back when we did our episode about transcendentalism in Concord, Massachusetts, you'll recall that was one of Henry David Thoreau's big beefs, and it was one of the reasons that he went out to Walden, was that he really disagreed with the invasion of Mexico that was happening. So... St. Patrick's Battalion is an interesting occurrence that really does not paint anyone in a good light. So during the Mexican-American War, there is a group of roughly 200 Irishmen. Now, it's not just Irish, and I want to make that point. It's generally seen as being Irish because the majority of them were Irish Catholic immigrants, Um, But there are a number of other groups in there. There are Germans, Canadians, English, French, Italians. There are a smattering if you read the actual list. But they kind of rally under an Irish flag. And their spokesperson is mainly Irish. And what happens is, is that this battalion is a group of both deserters and defectors, which I know to a lot of people there's not much difference between them who choose to leave the American army during the Mexican-American War because as Catholics, they start to more closely identify with the Mexican cause and the belief that the United States should not be invading their country. And there is a clear parallel here to Ireland and the British which cannot be overstated. And so they choose based on an ethnic, a religious, and an ideological base that they are going to leave. 
Now, this is slightly earlier. It's, you know, right around the same time as the famine. So I don't want to say they're part of that huge diaspora that leaves as a result of the famine, but I think that they are still more of the impoverished rural tenant farmer group of Irish. And I think that that's a big part of it. And so St. Patrick's Battalion are going to, they're going to be engaged in a number of different skirmishes in the mid to late 1840s, mostly 1846. These battles, I don't want to say that they are, you know, a huge, any of them are huge make or break, but it's enough that there is definitely tension with the American army and that there's a huge problem. And some of them are killed. Actually, a number of them are killed in these battles. I want to say 35 or 40 of them are probably killed in battles. Um, And then a number of them are captured. And we have very good records of what happens where they're captured. And there's a lot of factors that kind of play into this. Um, I guess they they particularly were targeting um, officers. There's a lot of resentment towards the U.S. Army because they definitely saw themselves as being outsiders um, and really not part of the larger fabric of the army and they just feel like they keep getting kind of punched down so what happens is is that many of them are captured and they are put on trial by the u.s army there are a couple of different factors that play in some try to claim that they were coerced or they were drunk there are a lot of excuses made So 72 men were immediately charged with desertion of the army. The second factor was, did you just desert or did you desert and then join the Mexican army? Because there are some guys who just run off and they never make a pledge of loyalty. They don't fight for the Spanish. Spanish, excuse me, Mexican. It's a little late. Apologies. However, you can see a lot of them have deep pride here because many of them don't even offer a defense. They feel that their actions stood for them. Um, I think the most interesting thing, and there's a, a pretty compelling painting that was actually made of the later execution um, of these soldiers. They are very notably hung. Uh, so the mass hanging of... St. Patrick's Battalion was portrayed by um, an artist by the name of Samuel Chamberlain. And he painted this about 20 years after it happens. And of course, it's an idealized vision. But, um, you know, a very prominent gallows with all of the men lined up together. The interesting thing is, this is not the way that the U.S. Army handled executions at that day. This penalty for desertion or defecting to the enemy during the time of war was death by firing squad, regardless of the circumstances. Hanging was reserved for spies. So the question is, were they seen as spies? 
I honestly don't think that's what it is. The, the other exception was if you committed sort of crimes against humanity that, you know, like real atrocities against innocent unarmed civilians. That was also a hanging offense. The interesting thing is, is that I read that 9,000 soldiers deserted the army during the Mexican-American War. This was not a popular war. Nobody wanted to be there. However, none were punished by hanging, with the exception of St. Patrick's Battalion. I think this was a clear message, and it was a message to Irish Catholics. That they were lower than scum, that they didn't even deserve the firing squad. There is a very clear, this was personal, and I think that there's a type of xenophobia here that can't really be ignored. You have three batches of executions, all of them hanging. Um, and you, if you read these descriptions, some of them are pretty brutal about the fact that, you know, they're just leaving these men to choke at the end of ropes, that the drops are not long enough to break their necks, that they're hanging them like dogs. There is a cruelty to this that is pretty dark. One of the men that they executed had had both legs amputated the day before. That surgeon, couldn't you just have cut the artery and let the poor man bleed out? I can't think of anything worse than having to hang a man who has no legs. That's pretty dark. St. Patrick's Battalion is interesting. Um, I read, I think it's an, a really strong book about... Not just the Irish in America, but the story of the Irish-American psyche, to a certain degree. Uh, it's a book called Looking for Jimmy. Um, it's written by a, a guy named Peter Quinn, who has written a lot about being an Irish-American. He's a third-generation Irish-American. And if you're interested in sort of the Irish-American story, he breaks it down into essentially the rough beginnings of the Irish getting into politics, getting into business and things like that, and how they really have thrived despite terrible odds against them. And he argues that the St. Patrick's Battalion or the, the San Patricios, as they're also known, uh, was the only group of deserters in American history who banded together in the service of a foreign enemy sort of based on their ethnic heritage. The idea that they were fighting for other Catholics who were being disenfranchised by a white Protestant race. And that's a pretty powerful statement. And it might have only been 200 men, and it might have been in a conflict that for most people is largely forgotten. But there's definitely, there's definitely something to be said about how xenophobia was really rampant across all levels of society in the military, So the last story I want to tell you is actually, let me go back for a second. You might have wondered why I wanted to make such a distinction about the different groups of Irish. While I think that there is something to be said for the fact that religion plays a huge factor into how the Irish are perceived in America, I think this distinction of Scotch-Irish versus Irish is in many ways a more modern one. And to prove this, 
The next story I'm going to tell you is actually somewhat contemporary. All of these stories that I'm telling you have kind of happened in the 1840s. This last story is actually going to be the earliest of the three, but I saved it for the end because there's some weird things to consider about this last story. Now, the interesting thing about St. Patrick's Battalion, which we just talked about, is the fact that these men don't really have graves, per se. Uh, Obviously, as traitors in the army, they are executed and they're actually left hanging. They're eventually buried, but they don't have a permanent gravesite. And the same thing is sort of going to be true for this next group of individuals. I know I may have mentioned at some point throughout the podcast that I used to live in Philadelphia. It was a brief period of my history. I only lived in Philadelphia for about a year. Was not the greatest fit for me. But there's a lot of history in Philly. And this story is one that somehow, despite everything that I heard about and I talked about when I was there, I somehow didn't know about And I have since read quite a bit about. So those of you who might be familiar with Philadelphia, part of the problem is is that Philly is almost universally equated with colonial history, despite the fact that so much has happened since then. We're not going to be talking about the colonial era. We're going to be talking about slightly after that in the 1830s. And I want to tell you about an incident known as Duffy's Cut. Now, one of the things that Philadelphia is definitely associated with in the 19th century is railroads. Even if you go there today, Reading Terminal Market is one of the biggest attractions in Philly. Um, You know, you have a lot of major railroads, obviously, most famously, the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Railroad. I can't talk. So the pen is probably the most famous and the railroad that I'm going to be talking about today is actually a predecessor to uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad and that is going to be the Philadelphia and Columbia Railroad. So the Philadelphia and Columbia Railroad is begun in the late 1820s which is on the early side for railroads. It starts in 1828 and they're building the stretch of the Philadelphia and Columbia Railroad that will eventually become the main line. Anyone from Philadelphia and probably a lot of people who are not from Philly are going to be familiar with the main line because this, though it originally was a railroad route, has become associated with a string of communities that grow up along this route. And this is the route that is going to be extending westward out of Philadelphia. And these suburbs, which are the first railroad suburbs, are going to become very wealthy suburbs for a couple of reasons. First of all, this is where folks start to move that can afford to. So dad can ride the train into his job in the city, whereas the family lives at the country house. The main line is, if you're familiar with any movies about Philadelphia society, um, I'm thinking the Philadelphia story with Katherine Hepburn or um, High Society with Grace Kelly All of these tend to take place at estates along the main line. And it's still called that today. You can follow the main line right out. Um, Eventually, it will be best known for its association with the Pennsylvania Railroad. 
but this is when the line was originally built. And a couple of years in, so four years into the construction, a contractor by the name of Philip Duffy is hired to construct mile 59 of the Philadelphia and Columbia Railroad. And this is a particularly hellish mile. So he is charged with creating what's called a cut. And a cut in railroad terminology is essentially leveling a hill or a ridge and taking all of the soil and fill from that ridge and using it to infill a valley. So essentially you're trying to level out the terrain to make a nice smooth ridge for the railroad to run across. But unfortunately the land doesn't always work that way. So this is brutal backbreaking labor and he promises completely unrealistic expectations about how long this will take him. It takes him years beyond what he originally estimates. And not surprisingly, he has to bring in a lot of labor very quickly to try to accomplish this. And that's sort of where our story starts. And he talks about a group that he brings in, which he terms as a sturdy-looking band of sons of Aaron. And he is essentially hiring manual labor right off the boat, so to speak. And... Subsequent research has revealed that these workers are actually, you know, folks who had literally been in the United States a month, maybe two, who they get off the boat, they are looking for work, and this is backbreaking labor, but most of these folks, as we've already discussed, are used to hard labor. That's what they're accustomed to, even though the majority of them are young men in their teens and 20s. So he hires on a group of about 57 men to work on what will become known as Duffy's Cut. Now, the interesting thing about them, if you recall back to when I was talking about the trends in immigration, is that these are all Ulster Protestants. Reading sort of the accounts of this, I think that there has been some misinterpretation that identifies them as Irish Catholics. Everything that I read, they are from three counties in the Ulster Plantation of Ireland. So they mainly come from Donegal, Tyrone, and Derry, all three of which are in that northern Ulster area, which is predominantly Protestant. And based on the folks who are immigrating at this time, I'm almost positive that these were actually Irish Protestants. There is nothing written about it in the overall literature, but I'm going to talk to you about why I don't want to call the literature falsified in any way because I don't think it necessarily is. I just think that a lot of assumptions are made that aren't some of the most sound. What we do know is that three of the men who are working on Duffy's Cut die of cholera. And we have this documented. Now, cholera, as we've already discussed, is the poop water disease. People do not realize this at the time, though. They see it as being a communicable disease. And while it certainly is communicable, it's not person-to-person communicable unless you are getting waste on your hands. So you start to have it spread through the camp. And we know about these first three individuals because the blacksmith in the camp takes it upon himself to individually bury each of these three first victims in their own grave 
And then afterwards, he torches the shanty that they were living in, this little wooden shack that they were holed up in while they were working on the railroad. Because he is smart enough to know that that is infected. Again, they don't know exactly where the infection is coming from, but they understand that it's not safe. Now, to switch over to a little bit of science... Um, Asiatic cholera, which is the most common form of cholera that's going to cause most of these epidemics in the 19th century, in general, has anywhere between a 40 and a 60% morbidity rate. So your odds aren't great. You basically have a 50-50 shot if you get cholera, whether you're going to live or die. The story that is told is that in Duffy's cut with these Irish laborers, that there is a 100% mortality rate, that all of them die of the disease. And this is the story that is told, and it is the story that is generally accepted for well over a century. Now, in 1970, the Pennsylvania Railroad will eventually shut its doors. It goes bankrupt. Before they finally shut things up, There is a gentleman who steps in and discovers some interesting papers that have been stored in the archives of the Pennsylvania Railroad. And this gentleman, his name is Joseph Trippian. And he's the secretary to the former president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, Martin Clement. And he saves a whole file about these Irishmen who died at Duffy's Cut. And it sits in his possession for another 20 years until it is discovered by one of his grandsons. So he has a pair of twins for grandsons. And one of the two, Reverend Dr. Frank Watson, finds these papers and starts to read them and takes them to his brother, William. Now, the Reverend Dr. Watson is actually a Lutheran minister, but his brother is a history professor. He is a professor of medieval history at Immaculata University. One thing you have to know about Philadelphia, very, very Catholic city, and there is a whole string of Catholic liberal arts colleges. Probably too many, and I've talked about this on a number of occasions with different Catholics I know in Philadelphia. There are too many Catholic universities to really be sustainable. But he works at one of these. And so they start to read into this, and something just doesn't sit right with them about it. They feel like there's more to this story. So they start trying to find the graves of these men. And they start this search somewhere around 2003. And it's going to eventually take them six years. It's not until 2009 that they uncover the first remains. So what they do is they focus their search around mile 59 and it takes them a long time because they don't know exactly there's no real geographic coordinates given for a lot of this they don't have any kind of working knowledge it's not like there's a map this is a very loose sketch of the events and nothing is reported so none of these men had death certificates issued to them other than these basic write-ups that we have in the railroad record we don't really know what happened nobody wrote it down nobody documented it And obviously, it's a mile in length. We don't know how far away from the main tracks this camp was. There are a lot of factors that make this a difficult search. But essentially, the area that they're focusing on is East Whiteland Township, um, which is around Malvern. So Malvern is one of these key mainline towns. 
And eventually what happens in 2009 is that they do turn up their first human remains. So this is where I pause. So this group of men, um, it starts obviously with the two twin brothers, but then it expands out to a number of William Watson's colleagues at Immaculata. So this includes uh, two adjunct professors, Earl Shandermeyer and John Attes, I think it's A-H-T-E-S, uh, who was actually deceased. He died in 2010. They form sort of a merry band of men. Um, the Watson boys in particular are very interested. They're very involved in a lot of Scotch-Irish sort of cultural groups and ethnic clubs. They both play the bagpipes. But this is this core group of guys, and while they are getting some help from their students and things like that, they do eventually have some folks who are experts in GPR and things like that come out. They get permission from property owners, but this is 100% an amateur operation. These are not trained archaeologists. They are historians. I'm not saying that to be critical, but I'm just saying that this is maybe not done in the same way that it would be if this was a formal archaeological excavation that's just my caveat there and I think a lot of it is just amateurs who are out there and saying hey we think there's a good story here we want to uncover the truth so they find bones and they start to find more and more and eventually they don't have a ton of complete skeletons but they find two skulls a handful of teeth and 80 other loose bones they also find a number of artifacts including things like pipes that clearly were part of this shantytown settlement that formed there while they were building the railroad. And I will say that they are smart about this. They look at the actual alignment of the railroad. They identify a ridge that's nearby and they say, all right, that makes sense. They would have camped on top of the ridge. So they use intuition very well. And I think that they make some really smart assumptions. Unfortunately, they don't discover the remains of all of the victims. And mainly this is because Amtrak, who now owns the railroad, steps in and says, well, you can't be digging right next to the tracks for safety reasons and things like that. So they were limited in the amount that they could excavate. Now, the next question is, with the bones that they did find, what did they discover? Well, the predominant theory is that based on the fact that there was blunt force trauma on many of the skulls. And they did bring in experts who did analysis on the bones, um, particularly uh, Janet Monge, M-O-N-G-E, uh, who is a forensic anthropologist. She teaches at Penn. They brought her in to do analysis on the bones. There are definitely injuries that are not cholera related. So the question is, did locals panic? Did a mob go out there and kill all of these men, whether they were infected or not, for fear that if they didn't, they could continue to pass on the virus? There's a lot of questions that you can ask here, but it does seem strange, knowing what we know about cholera as a disease, that it had this mortality rate, even among the close quarters of these railroad workers. And we don't have much documentation of anyone else dying. The fact is we don't have all the bodies and we don't necessarily have all the data, but that is the assumption that is made. And this has been something that in Ireland in particular has been very heavily covered. 
So the bones that are excavated are eventually going to be reinterred in a new grave, obviously a marked one. And that's going to be at West Laurel Hill. So in the cemetery world, Laurel Hill in Philadelphia is without a doubt its most famous cemetery. It is their garden cemetery. And I would argue, because I've seen a few, of all the rural garden cemeteries It is the most beautifully situated. It is on the top of a cliff overlooking the Schuylkill River. Just breathtaking views straight down overlooking the river, uh, which if you've seen Rocky at one point, Rocky kind of runs right by the base of Laurel Hill. This is not the same cemetery. So as Laurel Hill filled up, West Laurel Hill, which is outside the city, going towards the main line in, and I know that people from Philadelphia are going to make fun of me. I cannot pronounce the name of the town. It's Bala, B-A-L-A, C-Y-W-Y-N-D. Bala Swind? I know that's not right. I only lived in Philadelphia for a year. Honestly, I don't feel like it really matters one way or another if I know how to pronounce it. If you are from greater Philadelphia, you know where it is. It is located outside the city, and it is a beautiful cemetery in its own right. To draw a parallel to what it's like, it's the equivalent of, you know, the original Laurel Hill in Philadelphia is like Oakland Cemetery here in Atlanta. West Laurel Hill is similar to Westview Cemetery here in Atlanta. It's a massive cemetery. It covers a lot more acreage. It's built on the outskirts of the city. It has an incorporated funeral home that's right there. It's much more corporate looking. That being said, still magnificent. Some really, really beautiful markers there um, and just breathtaking mausoleums. West Laurel Hill is interesting because it covers a really wide range of years, uh, whereas original Laurel Hill is very strictly Victorian. So at West Laurel Hill, you have a wider range. You know, you have Art Nouveau, you have Art Deco, you have Modern. You have, coming right up into the modern era, you have a greater variety there, which is kind of fun. Um, Still a beautiful landscape, but obviously you're no longer right on the river, so you don't have quite a spectacular view. But this is the location that is chosen, without getting into too much of a tangent, for the reburial and the remains of the victims of Duffy Cut, at least the ones that were excavated, are reinterred there beneath a Celtic cross that tells their story. Now, there are two exceptions. One is John Ruddy, and John Ruddy is actually the first body that is identified. And he is identified because they do have his immigration records to the United States, and his skull has a very rare genital defect of one of his teeth. And this is something that less than one in a million Americans have. It's very rare. Um... But when they published his name, and as I said, this was well covered in Ireland, a family named Ruddy from the same town that he hailed from came forward and they have this same genetic defect in their teeth placement. As a result, they were able to establish a connection between them and they had his body repatriated to Ireland. Um, Also, a woman named Catherine Burns, who was also discovered among the victims, was claimed by her descendants over in Ireland as well. So I think that's interesting that 
in the modern day and age, they claim that there will be very few unidentified bodies. And this is a perfect example of people who died more than 150 years ago that have been able to establish genetic connections or physical connections with their country of origin. So Duffy's cut is an interesting example. As I said, I find parts of it problematic because I think that they do draw a lot of assumptions from not a lot of evidence. And also it's just weird because it's this group of four guys and nobody else ever really jumped on the bandwagon. It's not something that's gotten a ton of other outside interest. As I said, it was a very big story in Ireland, but I feel like academically it hasn't really, really picked up. There was an article about it in Smithsonian Magazine. I, I tried to read some of what's been written. But it is sort of weird because it's just this group of guys from this one, you know, not terribly well-known liberal arts college in Philadelphia who really made it their passion project, which I can respect. I think that there's definitely a story here. Uh, I think they filled in a lot of blanks with not a ton of evidence, but I don't think it's a bad theory as to what happened. People do terrible things when they're frightened. Uh, this is essentially Easy Rider, 150 years before Easy Rider, with Irish railroad workers instead of hippies. I can't argue with the story because I don't know what really happened. None of us do. But I think it's an important story to remember because we tend to talk just about prejudice towards Irish Catholics being part of nativist attitudes after the potato famine. This is a decade before the potato famine. So it shows that there was a certain fear even with Protestants who hailed from Ireland because they were seen as different and they were seen as not being native to this country. So Duffy's Cut, I think, is a very interesting story to tell in terms of that. So do things get better for the Irish? I would argue that they do. And the reason for this is that they start to play a big role in the story of the country. By the time the Civil War rolls around, you have 38 regiments that have the word Irish in them. You have nearly 150,000 Irish serving in the Union Army in the Civil War. They also become Americanized because they lose their accents. They do speak English. Even if they have a different religion, they become a very attractive ethnic group because they are far more like their white Anglo-Saxon Protestant counterparts than the new folks who are going to start immigrating in the post-Civil War era. So you start to have waves of immigration from Eastern Europe, from Southern Europe. These folks speak different languages. They have very different cultural practices. And they look different. They have dark skin. They have dark hair. They are both Catholic and Jewish you have a very markedly different population that is coming into the United States now, and the Irish start to no longer be quite as outcast due to the fact that they start to become part of mainstream America. And you will continue to have different waves of immigration happening through the 1920s. Um, you have some Irish immigration continue. You know, it never really completely slows. Case in point, um, a few years ago, uh, my godmother, Beth, who is my mother's cousin, she had our genealogy traced, at least on the 
Irish side. So, to wrap up, I will give my story. And I think it's interesting because being a cemetery person, I have tried to learn where my people are buried. And for the most part, I don't actually know. So, at least on one side of the family, my story in the United States starts in 1893. So, considerably after a lot of these immigration stories that we told today. And it starts with a woman named Bridget McLaughlin, which is about damn near the most Irish name I can think of. And Bridget McLaughlin immigrated from Ireland at age 17 by herself. Now, before that, what I do know about her is that she was the daughter of John McLaughlin, who was born in 1849, and Anne Lynch, who was born in 1851. And she comes from the town of Boyle, which is in County Roscommon, which is actually moving up towards Ulster. It's in the northern part of Ireland. I don't know when her parents died, but I am presuming that they were probably dead by the time she was 17, and that was the reason that she immigrated alone. And she, so she was born September 12th, 1876. She immigrates at age 17. She cannot read or write when she arrives in the United States. She gets work as a laundress, and she immigrates to Providence, Rhode Island, which... Providence is interesting because after New York, it was actually one of the largest ports of call, um, particularly for the Fabra line, which was one of the big immigrant um, ship lines. She married, so this is my great-great-grandmother. She married a man named Thomas Curran. Interestingly enough, Thomas Curran was born in a town that was only about 25 miles away from her as the crow flies in Ireland. Um, And he is from a town called Ballinmore, which is in County Latrim. His parents were John Curran and Mary McQueenie. He was the third of six children. He immigrated two years after her, arriving on May 15th, 1895. His occupation is listed as laborer. He was born in 1872, so that makes him about... 23 when he comes and he had two bags with him so they are going to marry on July 11th 1900 my great-grandmother whose name is Elizabeth she's who I'm named after her name is Elizabeth Curran and I actually have a second cousin who's a boy who his first name is Curran we're actually both named after her She's going to be born on June 9th, 1901, so just under a year, so about 11 months. And then my great-great-grandfather will die on November 6th, 1901, when she's not even six months old. So he's 29 when he dies. My question is, what was great-great-grandpa up to? Because the cause of death is listed as gamma of the brain, which is a tertiary symptom of syphilis. It's a swelling on the brain. So great-great-grandpa, apparently in his 29 short years, got up to a whole bunch of trouble. You might ask, why is this important? Well, I have no idea where he's buried. 
we know that he dies. I have records of his five siblings. I have records of his parents. I have no idea where he was buried. I've looked on find a grave. I don't know. I'm assuming he probably was buried in a pauper grave. He is a laborer. His wife is a laundress. They don't have a lot of money. Um, The house that they lived in actually no longer exists. It was on Bishop Street, which the area where Bishop Street is today is actually part of the huge campus of Rhode Island Hospital. So the house that he lived in no longer exists. I have looked in most of the major Catholic cemeteries and I don't I can't find a grave listed for him. So I think it's a valuable lesson. And I bring this up because we don't know where he is. He died in a hospital, which is unusual for the time. But he was poor and he was part of the working labor class. When he died, he had been in the United States just six years. So still very much a newcomer. My great-great-grandmother, she rallied. She kept her daughter for the first four years of her life. They are listed in the 1905 census. At that point, she is listed as literate. So sometime in her first 12 years in the United States, she taught herself how to read and write. She's still occupied as a laundress. But shortly after that, probably because work was easier for a woman without a child, she actually sent her daughter away to live um, with a family in the country. And eventually, in the next three years, she works her way to that same town uh, across the border in Massachusetts called North Attleboro, and she marries a widower by the name of Dennis O'Neill. She's 31, he is 48, and he has three children from a previous marriage. Uh, The youngest of his three children was born in 1892. His first wife dies the same year, so I'm going to assume that she died in childbirth. Also, though, I have no listing for where she is buried. So you can see that it becomes tricky because these things were not well documented. But so my great-great-grandmother, she went on to live until 1957. So she lives pretty much to age 80. She lives a good life. Um, I have no idea where her second husband is buried. Uh, Nobody ever really talked about him. Uh, He dies, I think, in the 30s. I couldn't find a grave listed for him either. But I do know where she's buried. She is in Old St. Mary's. Uh, There's two sections of St. Mary's Cemetery in North Attleboro. Uh, And she is buried there with her daughter, Elizabeth Curran, and Elizabeth Curran's husband, my great-grandfather, Alphonse. So I think it's kind of interesting. Someone born in the 1870s in Ireland comes over and struggles significantly but then does really get integrated and become part of the American dream. So that's my own little Irish story and me wandering about some of the the lost graves of my relatives because, like I said, I don't really know where they are. But I think it's a worthwhile question to consider because we tend to think that, you know, immigration in and of itself and arriving in a new country is sort of the end goal. And it isn't always. It isn't always quite that easy. So now to end, because it is St. Patrick's Day, and you can't really talk about St. Patrick's Day without talking about Danny Boy. So those of you who are Irish undoubtedly have sat through many sad, drunken renditions of Danny Boy, and even those of you who aren't Irish have probably suffered through it once or twice. So this is the unofficial Irish-American anthem. So I got kind of curious about it, and I started to do some research thinking that I could get to the bottom of this because Danny Boy 
interestingly enough, is one of the few songs that I can think of that actually talks about graveyards and cemeteries in it. So if you're not familiar with the lyrics, we hear about Danny Boy going away and sort of being lamented by his lover and his lover talking about if when he comes back, she's dead, which dead she well may be. She encourages him to come to her grave and kneel and say an Ave for her. Ave, obviously being the Ave Maria, the, the Latin version of the Hail Mary. And she claims, and I shall hear those soft you tread above me. It's interesting because this is, it's so poignant. And you can often see just full grown brawny Irishmen sobbing like little girls when they hear the lyrics of this song. So I wanted to know, like, what is it about? And obviously we tend to think of, you know, the Irish as being an incredibly troubled people, particularly in terms of their history with the British, particularly in terms of the uprisings that have happened throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. So I always assumed that Danny Boy had something to do with that. And I'm going to be honest with you, apparently not. So Danny Boy's written in 1913 by, of all things, an Englishman. It's written by a British lawyer by the name of Frederick Edward Weatherly. He was born in 1848, dies in 1929. And he had written the lyrics to a different tune and then was sent a copy of Londonderry Air, which, if you ever wondered why Danny Boy is such a familiar tune, it's because lots of songs have been written to Londonderry Air. He was sent it by his sister, in law and he adapts the lyrics to this tune and i must have looked through 50 sources everybody will tell you the irony of it being written by a british lawyer everyone will tell you about londonderry londonderry air nobody really has a good explanation for it i mean it certainly sounds like a war ballad with you know the pipes the pipes are calling I can't find any explanation as to exactly what he's referring to. So I think that we can just give old Mr. Weatherly a little bit of credit for writing a damn good tune that for some reason plucks the heartstrings. And I think that Danny Boy is just generic enough and tells a story just tragic enough that it falls in there with, you know, the classic ballads like Loch Lomond, but doesn't actually have any kind of historical basis. But regardless, I think it's good, and it has great graveyard imagery, and you really can't talk about St. Patrick's Day without it. And I have been known, after a few too many Guinnesses, to definitely belt out a version. So hopefully that puts you in the mood for some soda bread and corned beef and cabbage, and of course, lots and lots of green beer. Unfortunately, it looks like many, many of the St. Patrick's Day festivities, particularly parades and things like that, are being canceled. But hopefully, at the very least, you get to celebrate at home and with your family because everyone is Irish on St. Patrick's Day, not just the 10.6% that self-identify, because anyone can self-identify. On another note, this is going to be released on another Friday the 13th episode, and ironically... It is going to be our 26th episode, and I say R, even though I know it's just me. Thank you. It has been six months since this little endeavor started. Those of you who have stuck with me from the beginning, I do really appreciate it. 
I have seen a very marked jump in my numbers uh, over the past six weeks. So I appreciate that because obviously I was nervous going it alone and you have been incredibly supportive. So I think it's great that the six month anniversary falls on another Friday the 13th. It is a cemetery podcast after all. Thank you to those of you who have reached out and who have been very supportive. Given the current situation, I've had to do a little bit of scrambling this month because a lot of the interviews and things like that that I had planned, some of the topics I had planned, I've put to the wayside and I've shuffled around a little bit. But hopefully you're still having fun with it. Once things normalize a bit, I promise you some more interviews. I do have some exciting stuff coming up. But six months is a lot. Uh, I went to a podcasting event a couple weeks ago and I realized that it it is a big deal. That a lot of people say they're going to do it. Most podcasts fail after just seven episodes. I'm 26 in, half a year in. That's really exciting. And I have met some incredible people as a result of this. So those of you who are listening know that I do appreciate it. And it what's really makes me want to do this and do the research, even when I'm tired, even when I'm busy. I'm a one woman operation. So it's not always easy, but having people get excited about this topic having people share it and having people be able to use what they learn here in their everyday lives, in their friends groups, in their local cemeteries is the reason that I did this. I didn't get into it for the money. I didn't get into it for the fame. I did it because there's a lot of not great information out there. And I wanted to try to educate people the best way that I could about the best way to care for cemeteries, about the history of cemeteries, and about what makes them such valuable cultural resources. So I'm going to continue to do that from here on out. As always, you can find me on social media at Tomb with a View Podcast on Facebook and Tomb Period with Period A Period View on Instagram. The website is www.tombwithaview.weebly.com. And if you would care to reach out via email, tombwithaviewpodcast at gmail.com. As always, if there's anything that you'd like to hear about, things that you're interested in, I am working on some exciting episodes that people have requested. So those are going to be coming up soon in the next couple of months. Have a very happy St. Patrick's Day. Have a green beer for me. I always encourage it. But for now... Aaron Gobra, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tune with a View.